This is Creating Utopia, the podcast, ideas to change the world, where we turn conversation into action. Thank you for joining. This episode is titled 1984 in 2018. I've got a question right off the top, and I'd love to get some feedback on Twitter with an answer from you all. I want to hear from whoever is listening, what is the first book you would recommend? Meaning, what is the most influential book you've ever read, or the book that you wish more people would read? Because this podcast is about 1984, the most influential book I, like many others, have ever read. It's a classic, it's been taught in schools, it's referred to in popular media. Orwellian is a word in the dictionary, spawned from the last name of the author, George Orwell. And I'm going to use 1984 to talk about societal ideas in 2018. Nearly everyone who has access to information is familiar with 1984 on some level, but what I haven't heard discussed adamantly since Christopher Hitchens is the recognition of the Orwellian nature of many aspects of global societal life in many places today. I'm going to start with the Creating Utopia summary of 1984, and I'll try to explain what I took from the story after reading it quite a few times now. You are supposed to be the main character, Winston. Orwell makes a Herculean effort to describe everything Winston is seeing and feeling, from my perspective, because it is truly impossible to empathize with a character in his situation. You can't really wrap your mind around what day-to-day -day life must be like for anyone in 1984, let alone Winston, someone who is haunted day in and day out by his thoughts that things aren't right. So you picture yourself basically waking up in a parallel universe, where... The authoritarians devised a system to ensure the end of global power struggle on any level. Rather than have governments voted in and out and power gained and lost, or the proletariat rising up and taking some power only to be oppressed again in a vicious cycle that humanity has repeated since history has been recorded, the leaders implemented a system of ultimate control and built into it constant revision in the sense that those inside the system are working to make the world even more repressive every single day. So by the time the story starts, the year 1984 is a world where not only something like freedom of speech has been forgotten, you don't even have the freedom to think. Winston learns that rumors of an underground revolutionary group is apparently real, a group that shares his perspective that humans aren't meant to be subjugated that truth is truth, and the government, and no one for that matter, can erase or change the past, which is one of the many tactics the government, called Big Brother, uses, distorting and changing history to better suit the narrative that they need. He learns that life used to be very different, that humans weren't always constantly under surveillance. He learned that there was a time when people could share their thoughts and ideas openly, with no threat against their freedom, safety, or life. And at the end, perhaps the reason 1984 is so compelling is that after the Renaissance period of Winston's life, or your life for that matter, Big Brother, the government, still wins. He finds that even his apparent glimmer of freedom was an orchestrated level of control. He learns ultimately that humanity would most likely be unable to free themselves from this final form of perfect dictatorship, it's chilling, it's disheartening, and most of those who read 1984 and most of those who read it for the first 50 to 70 years that it was out 
They saw a dystopian future that needed to be avoided. I'm making this podcast, I guess, because I hear people referring to 1984 and Orwellian politicians and political moves. There are those concerned about privacy. Many are concerned about government overreach, uh, First Amendment supporters that feel there's a threat to free speech. Second Amendment supporters feel there's a threat to the right to protect themselves. What we're failing to take seriously is that, in many ways, the individual sovereignty of human beings, regardless of where you live and where you're born, has been seriously reduced and is constantly approaching near zero relatively quickly, depending on where you live. I guess maybe I've been listening to the Ayn Rand folks that Dave Rubin has been interviewing too much lately, because it keeps coming to my mind every time I hear them speak about liberty and freedom and individual rights and responsibility. I have the same shudder, the same feeling I got when I read the last few pages of 1984. I have serious reservations about assuming that we are seriously free, in any sense. The moment people decide to do something different, let alone radically different, to live out a game B, there is an, an entire apparatus, not entirely orchestrated or anything, it's not brought on by the dictatorship. But this apparatus has been implemented and crafted by those who do not want the world to change. The self-appointed guardians of the status quo. 1984 is relevant today because there are elements that came to fruition. Elements that could potentially happen in the future or are already happening in certain countries around the world. And the threat of a 1984-esque world has been amplified by the rise of Vladimir Putin as most likely the most powerful human the world has ever seen. The threat is highlighted by Donald Trump's affinity for lying and many of his supporters' either willingness to believe lies or perhaps just ignore the truth. But what I'm going to spend the rest of the podcast doing is an experiment for future interview podcasts I have that I'm working on where I'm just going to propose some seeming common-sense societal or political action that could be taken, at least common sense from my perspective, in the form of a question, I think there are areas that nearly every politician might actually agree on that can get us away from this 1984-esque trajectory that we might be heading on. I'm sure I'm not the only one wondering why the political system seems so inefficient, and I have a suspicion that, due to technology, we actually have an ability to make the government work. We just need to come together as active, responsible citizens and recognize what we have in common and we, what we all can agree on that is beneficial. So in 1984, people were unable to have an opinion. Basically, if they said they didn't like the government policy, they were erased from history. They were thrown into prison, tortured, or worse. Let's just recognize that this is happening in North Korea and on a very small scale in Russia, Venezuela. It's most likely happening in Cuba and China. It's happened for quite a while. This is serious being wiped off the face of the earth for voicing an opinion. So in North America specifically, where I live, no matter what political party you belong to, we should recognize that A, we still can use the ability to speak openly to have any conversation necessary in order to move society forward. There is no censorship and no need for it. All ideas should be out in the open and everyone should be informed about what their ideas mean whether or not their ideas are backed up by reality. And B, the internet has allowed for every one of us to get an opinion. 
We also can learn about an opinion and voice it and share it and maybe convince other people. This is different than any other time period in the world and opposed to 1984. So the question I have, is there any political party or representative that is opposed to empowering the constituents to speak, to be heard, and to influence policy? One step the government could actually take that I think everyone would approve of is a shift toward personal democracy. The ability for the people to learn about issues and vote on them specifically at community grassroots levels. This way, you actually decide where your tax dollars go on the most direct scale. And on a countrywide scale as well, if you don't like foreign aid spending, for example, you could feasibly adjust your tax dollars and put it on education. Or if you want public health care, the people can prove it by allocating their tax dollars to support it. We can appreciate that it's not 1984 in the realm of sharing and voicing our opinions. And notice that it's actually more of a revolution in terms of having the ability to share one's thoughts. I wonder what a politician would say in terms of empowering citizens to be more active in the democratic and political process. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This point is actually scary for me because I've been watching political debates from the 90s, 80s, and 70s, and jobs, jobs, jobs is repeated over and over and over. One of the themes of 1984 was this idea that we're being conditioned. If we say this country is an enemy, they're an enemy. If we say this drug, like alcohol and prohibition or marijuana contemporaneously, is bad and illegal, then you can't have it, and we'll put you in a cage if you use it. So we already have to navigate in a world where we're at risk of being arrested for things that can't possibly warrant being locked in a cage for. And also, there is a narrative espoused. The one that I'll focus on here is that jobs is the most important political and economic driver and fundamental to one's living a worthwhile life. And I mean, don't get me wrong, jobs are important in many sectors of industry. Jobs in some sectors, like fast food, could be automated yesterday. So those aren't really productive for society other than to get cash in the hands of the people. There's a rising tide of support around universal basic income, and I couldn't be happier. I advocate for Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate for 2020. It's long overdue and will alleviate so many societal issues. But the notion that in order to be of value, you need a job, in order for the world to keep spinning, you need a job, I think that ethic is changing, but also needs to change in a little bit of a different way. In order to be of value, you need to be active in some way, shape, or form in the betterment of others' lives. It can be a job, it can be volunteering, it can be creating art or music, it can be teaching. There is no limit to what is valuable. And to say that you need a job in a world where obviously, since the 70s, 80s, 90s, thousands, and now, Every politician continues to talk about the need for and shortage of jobs. The problem is not being fixed, and it's not going away with automation on the way. The question here is, why do you continue to discuss jobs when you have been for 50 years? Why hasn't there been an alternative explored? One of the beautiful things about living in the moderately free society in Canada is that 
we do have the ability to create almost anything we want. And again, the digital revolution is creating tools and avenues for us to shape our communities in positive, environmentally friendly ways that also happen to be more cost effective. Check out my podcasts on desalination or solar. The 1984 weapon of surveillance, the cameras and microphones in our cell phones that we carry with us at all times, are not being used against us. And they hold the tools to capitalize on the sharing economy, Airbnb, car shares, Craigslist, Subhub, all of these marketplaces that allow for a bit more even distribution of entrepreneurship. I'll make an entire podcast about the sharing economy in the future, but for now, I just wanted to appreciate that we do have freedom in many realms, and the internet is always creating more avenues to explore. Thought crime. This is one of Orwell's most influential ideas. The thought police exist just to arrest you if your thoughts don't align with that of the political party and therefore everyone else. I hear Dave Rubin and many comedians, for that matter, discuss how thought crime is becoming a real issue. They can't say or insinuate some things that were once acceptable or some things that need to be said, and careers are being ruined because of this apparent overreach of power. Well. The counterpoint on this front is that you have a society that is voting nearly 50-50 down opposing lines. Thought crime is not a reality when you have half of the population holding an opposing viewpoint from the other half. If anything, the apparent splitting of the country to me signifies the people aren't happy either way and are choosing lesser of two evil type candidates and have been for a long time now. Thought crime may be upheld within a political fraction. Say, if you're liberal, you can't also be against abortion. But I think upon further inspection, most of us can see that there is no one we agree with 100% of the time, and no one we disagree with 100% of the time either. And there's no problem with that. I think the political question here is, is there any viewpoint that is unsayable or unthinkable? Is there anything that we're not allowed to talk about or acknowledge? Anything that people should perhaps be put in jail for thinking? I wonder what people's thoughts are to this in general. If so, who decides what thoughts are criminal? In the comedic world, in order to be successful on the global mass media scale, you have to cater to the market. Free speech isn't being limited in this sense, it's just being voted down by the audience. The last point I want to make in this podcast is about war, and it's just a question I've never heard an answer to. In Orwell's book, the entire society operated on a wartime economy in a wartime ethic, where everyone was organized for the protection of the state. Well, everyone recognizes that a percentage of tax dollars goes toward the military, the largest socialist program that we have, but just think how Orwellian is it that we don't really know who the enemy is, or why. In 1984, at least the leaders had divided the world into three and you were either at war with one and peace with the other, vice versa, or at war with both. In our world, there is perpetual war, but what leaders, what countries, what citizens, what politicians are really saying, we are at war? Who is saying we want to be at war? What group of citizens is at home ramping up for war? There is a short list of countries where this is and could be true, and there are percentages of people in certain countries, don't get me wrong. There are other countries that are entire wartime 
economies like North Korea. But perhaps it's time we asked, who are we at war with and why? If there's a good reason, it let's hear. But who in the world has said they want to be at war with the United States? Everyone knows the repercussions of that. If they said that, perhaps it's a good reason that we're dropping bombs, like say with ISIS. They declared war, so fine, so be it. But what about the rest of the world? I'd just be curious to hear a politician's response to. Who are we at war with and why are we at war? And what war are we preparing for? Who with and why? Before I finish up this episode, I'll uh, end with the final segment, How to Create Utopia. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please like and share. That's the number one way to support it. But I've heard over and over that the pursuit of utopia leads to dystopia. George Orwell's 1984 is certainly a dystopia. There are many dystopian depictions of the future one could think of, and many utopian versions we could conceive of and end up with as well. The idea behind creating utopia is not that we need to outline utopia and do everything necessary to build it right now. It's that we should be striving toward the positive, recognizing the positive, and recognizing the potential pitfalls, and steering toward the direction that might end up in a better world. We create utopia this week by recognizing that as long as we don't live in a dystopia, the world is kind of a utopia. Compared to those living in 1984, compared to those living through World War I or World War II, living in many countries in 2018 would be a dream. It's not perfect, and it's flawed in many ways, but the world we have is much better than it could be, and there are pockets where true freedom is still being strived for. That in itself is a reason for being alive, for appreciating each day, let alone taking responsibility and trying to make things better yourself. The entire world could be North Korea right now. The entire world could have been conquered by Hitler or Stalin or Mao. The trajectory we are on is positive, and we can create utopia if we recognize the trajectory. Things could be worse, and they're not that bad. And they're getting better. We need to do our best to keep that trajectory on course. Like I said last week, just by pursuing positive ideas, you become a vessel through which positive ideas flow. You have no choice. Just by listening to this podcast, you've had time to consider some ideas pertaining to 1984 and authoritarianism that you might have forgotten about or not considered. Together, we're furthering our own thoughts about what the world is and where we're heading. We're building our mind into something greater than it was before. If that's not creating utopia, I don't know what is.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Creating Utopia. If you found it had value, please like and share and follow me on Twitter at creating underscore utopia. Any questions, comments, or concerns sent my way, well, I'll make every effort to reply to them all. Stay tuned for the next podcast on the intellectual dark web.